I think you have one life and that's it. I think you just lights out and you're done. I don't think you go anywhere. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Probably into the crematorium. Cremated, scattered in the ocean. In the ground. That's it. That's all I think. That's it, just in the ground. And you rot. That's all. Underground, I guess. <laughs> um, that's it. Uh, I'd like to hope there's something better, but I would say, yeah, underground. I think this is it. So we better make the best of it while we're here. There aren't any other chances. Um, I like to think our energy goes somewhere, and hopefully, I guess I believe in a heaven and a hell, but um, <laughs> I guess if you live your life, Positively, hopefully, you go somewhere. Good. Oh, heaven. If there's a heaven. <laughs> I think I'll go to the good place because I've been really, I'm an angel. <laughs> hopefully, heaven. I hope when I die, I go to heaven because I do have a real strong belief in God. And I hope that I have led a good life and a worthy life and am worthy to, to make it there. Uh, probably heaven. <laughs> I'm going to heaven to be with Jesus. It's my plan. Nowhere, really. I haven't really... I don't think I'm going anywhere specific. I don't know much about heaven or anything like that. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't really... I don't, I don't think that much happens after we die. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think our energy just disappears when we die. It goes somewhere. And whether that's God or Buddha or Allah or, you know, the sun god or, you know, whatever it happens to be, I think it's all sort of the same idea. And we all have that feeling that we are going to live on. And, uh, and I think that's comforting for most people. I don't know. And I'm okay with not knowing. Yeah. Well, I want to welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting together at one of our in-person worship gatherings at our various campuses. In case you're wondering, that video clip you just saw was recorded a number of years ago, long before COVID. Today, I want to talk to you about a place that people would rather not talk about. Now, some Calgarians are open to talking about this place, but most get pretty upset when you bring this place up. They really don't want to go there, and they can't imagine ever ending up there, but people do. I want to talk to you today about Edmonton. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, we love you, uh, Edmontonians. Uh, I know I pick on you from time to time, but only when I am really desperate for a little bit of humor. And given the subject matter today, uh, this is one of those times. But seriously, as you saw in the video, many people in our city haven't given a lot of thought to the afterlife. Most are not sure what happens to us after we die, nor do they seem to be overly concerned about it. And yet, ignoring death and the afterlife doesn't make it go away or make it any less real. In the scripture passages that we'll be, we're going to be looking at today, Jesus describes two pathways, one that leads to eternity with God and the other without God. My question is, on which pathway are you on? In this message, I want to take us to the Bible and to the words of Jesus to discover 
what he has to say about death and the afterlife. I say that because, as you've probably noticed, it's getting harder and harder to know what is true. Who is telling the truth and who you can trust? What is fake news and what isn't? That's because many in our society believe that truth is relative. In other words, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Unfortunately, we are now witnessing the fallout of this existential world view. I mean, have you ever in your lifetime seen the kind of political, racial, and religious polarization that's happening right now? It's happening because we've rejected absolute objective truth. There's a, there's a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma in which some of the top creators of the social media tools that we use today, they talk about the power of social media, how we are addicted to our phones and being strategically influenced through social media. By the way, they won't let their children or their teens on any social media. But what especially stood out to me was what one fellow said at the end. He said, the problem that we face as a civilization is we no longer know what's true. Friends, that is the social dilemma that we are facing. And the polarization that we're witnessing around us is where you end up when you reject God. And so I want to tell you right up front what I have said to countless people over the last 40 years of my life and that is I have never found a more authoritative truth source than Jesus Christ and the Bible his written word I have never found a truth source that speaks so clearly so consistently so comprehensively about the issues and the questions of life, like, how do we get here? Why we're here? What our purpose is in life? How can we experience true fulfillment, freedom, joy, and peace in this life? And how we can prepare for the next life? And so as we look at our Bible passage, I'm going to invite you to be open-minded and to consider all that Jesus has to say about the afterlife. What he has to say about heaven and hell. And I challenge you to seriously investigate his claim to be the truth. Because if he is the truth, and you ignore or reject him without doing your homework, then you have everything to lose in this life and the next. But before we get into it, let's pause and dedicate this time to our Lord in prayer our heavenly father i'm reminded of the scripture that says we don't always understand why things are the way they are and today's subject is one of those and so i pray that you would help us to understand your truth and also your heart in these matters despite the emotions that we may feel i pray that you would give us an open mind a soft heart 
and the courage to hear and to respond to all that you say to us today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a study on the book of Matthew, and presently, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 13, in which Jesus is describing to his disciples what the kingdom of God is like. And we come now to the final parable that Jesus gives in this particular teaching session, the parable of the net. And this is what it says. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Now in Jesus' day, one of the methods used by fishermen to catch fish was a very large dragnet. Floats were attached to the top of the net and weights to the bottom of the net, forming a wall of net from the surface to the bottom of the lake. As the net was slowly pulled into a giant circle between two boats, the fish were trapped, unable to escape, after which the fishermen dragged the net and the fish up onto the shore. And then they would sit down and they gathered the good fish into containers for sale and they threw away all the bad fish or the fish that were inedible. Now, in verse 49, Jesus gives us the meaning of the parable. He says this, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus begins his interpretation of the parable by explaining that the separation of the good and bad fish represents God's judgment, which will come at the end of the age or when Jesus comes again. Now, in verse 24, through the parable of the weeds, you'll remember or may remember that Jesus taught that until the end of the age or until he comes again, he is going to be patient and he's going to extend grace to those who are ignoring or just flat out rejecting him. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 says, God our Savior wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. However, beginning in verse 40 and then again in verse 49, Jesus goes on to say that a day of judgment is coming. In the same way that no fish will escape the dragnet, so no human being will escape the reality of death. And after that, they will face the judgment of God. Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined, or people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. This verse teaches that there is no such thing as reincarnation, 
we are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 31. It says this there, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, it says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now in these passages, Jesus teaches that after we breathe our last here on earth, we will face an eternal destiny either of indescribable joy with the Lord in heaven or unspeakable loss in a place called hell. Now let me state again, God hates hell and he hates people going there. Jesus died. He gave up everything to make a way for people not to go there because we are, as we learned last week, we are his priceless treasure. And let me also say this. I find no joy or delight in speaking about the reality of hell. There is something wrong when Christians, including preachers and televangelists, often with a smug and self-righteous spirit, seem to gloat, take great pleasure telling people that they're headed for hell. No, we should be heartbroken when we talk about this truth. Tears should come to our eyes every time we talk to others about the reality of hell. To be honest, the idea of the universalist that everyone will eventually go to heaven, you know, it's a very appealing thought. I wish it were true. Seriously, I do. I do not wish for anyone to end up in hell. I've dedicated my life to influence and to challenge people to avoid hell by embracing Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. The problem is, you have to reject not only the Bible, but you have to reject Jesus himself and what he taught about the reality of hell to conclude that everyone will just end up in heaven one day regardless of their choices in life. Consider what Jesus said about hell here in our scripture lesson. First of all, Jesus taught that hell is separation from God and also from others. Verse 49 says, The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. Those who are in Christ, by faith, will go to be with the Lord, 
while those who have rejected Christ will be separated eternally from God in a place called hell. See, the thing which makes heaven heaven is that God's presence will be there. In the same way, the thing that makes hell hell is that God's presence will not be there. Everything that God is and that heaven is, hell is not. For example, the Bible describes heaven as a place of perfect love and perfect belonging and a place of true rest and, and peace. Well, hell will be the exact opposite, a place of loneliness and isolation. Hell is separation from God and also from others. Some people, you know, they have this idea that hell is going to be a fun place filled with parties and orgies and good times with good friends. Well, hell may be like that in someone's imagination, but it's not how Jesus describes it at all. Again, the imagery in both here in Matthew chapter 13 and also Matthew 25 is that of separation. Separation from God and also from others. There is no community in hell. It's a place of aloneness. Furthermore, hell is a place of anguish. Here in Matthew 13, verse 42, and then again in verse 50, Jesus describes hell as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it's important to note that the blazing furnace is meant to be figurative. It stands for a place of judgment and undying, and undying regret, not a place of literal burning. Weeping, if you think about it, is, is what you do when you're feeling hopeless and sad. Gnashing of teeth is not physical pain, as some believe. No, it is really more the emotional pain you experience when you are filled with deep regret and angry at yourself uh, about something. For example, here you are driving like an out-of-control emergency vehicle, weaving in and out of traffic because once again, you are late for your son's hockey game. Only this time, it is his final championship game of the season. Your blood pressure is skyrocketing and wouldn't you know it, any hope of catching even the last period of the game is snuffed out when you get pulled over for speeding. And as you wait for the officer to write you up, you take your frustration and your regret out on your steering wheel, hitting it with your hands, maybe even hitting it with your head, gritting your teeth and saying, I can't believe I got myself into this situation again. Why, why do I keep doing this? Or instead of blaming yourself, maybe you'll do what so many other people do, and that is you'll take your frustration uh, out on the police and blame them for being the cause of you missing your son's games. All that to say, you don't gnash your teeth when you are in physical pain. You grit your teeth when you are in emotional pain. When you are filled with regret for your own actions or angry at someone for how things have turned out. Well, in the same way, 
People who have ignored God or stubbornly resisted God all their lives will be angry at themselves, full of regret saying, I knew better. Jesus is the son of God. I had the opportunity, but I was too proud. I was too self-willed, too in love with the things of this world to take him seriously. Or they'll be angry at God. They'll gnash their teeth at him. They'll blame him. They'll accuse him. They'll curse him for what has happened to them. I guess what I'm saying is, hell is a place of utter heartbreak. Even though hell may not be an eternal torture chamber, the Bible makes it clear that it is the last place that you'll want to end up at. Dr. J.P. Moreland, he reminds us that any figure of speech in the Bible has a literal point. What is figurative in this case is, is the furnace and the burning flame. What is literal is that this is a place of utter anguish and sadness. It is the loss of everything and it is the worst possible place a person could ever end up at. Which leaves us with perhaps the greatest issue that people have with Christianity. And that is why is hell necessary? How can a loving God send people to hell? Some even wonder how God could send children to hell. Well, the short answer to that question is there is no indication in the Bible that there will be children in hell. Others wonder how God could condemn people to hell who have never heard of Jesus. Well, I give a complete answer to that question in a sermon entitled, What About Those Who Have Never Heard About Jesus? Which is part of the Why Believe series, which you can access online. And so I won't speak to it except to say this. No one is going to hell because of a lack of knowledge or understanding or because of a low IQ or mental deficiency. Romans 1 makes that very clear. So let's go back to the original question. Why is hell necessary? Well, two reasons. First, because God's justice requires it. And secondly, because God's love requires, requires it. Let me unpack these a little more. First of all, hell is necessary because God's justice requires it. God is love, but he is also just. And when he sees evil and injustice in the world, he can't just turn a blind eye to it. It would be contrary to his very nature to do so. Now, the Bible says that we're made in God's image, which means we're wired up with God's sense of justice. Now, to give you a sense of that, let me ask you, if your spouse or, say, your best friend was murdered by someone, wouldn't there be something inside of you screaming that an injustice has been done and that this murder needs to pay for their crime? Or let me ask you this. How would you feel if our justice system let the person who sexually abused your child go free because of some legal technicality or the persuasive powers of a high-paid lawyer? Isn't there something inside of you that would be enraged by this miscarriage of justice? 
Well, that sense of justice that you're feeling finds its origin in God. It's that part of you that's made in his image. God's very nature will not allow him to let the murderer, the, the rapist, the extortionist, or the abuser off the hook to, to simply walk away without paying for the crimes that they've committed. I mean, how would you feel about God if he was like that? That's not a loving God at all. Yale University theologian Marislav Wolf, who witnessed violence and death firsthand in the Balkans, he says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception, that God would not be worthy of worship. In short, because of his love for his creation, God is angry at evil and injustice. At anything bent on hurting or destroying his creation. No different than you or I would be angry at anything or anyone bent on hurting or destroying our loved ones. And even though our human justice systems may not always make correct judgments, God promises to make all injustices right in his time and in his way. Not always when we want it or perhaps even the way we want it, but he will make it right. We can trust him in this. Now, I'm sure that we understand that, and therefore, we understand why hell is necessary. We can appreciate why the murderers, the molesters, and the like deserve hell. You know, most people I've talked to believe that evil people like this deserve to go to hell. But here's the thing. Because most of us think that we haven't done any of these horrible crimes, we don't deserve to go to hell. And yet, why do we think that God should ignore lying, cheating, greed, slander, malicious gossip, or a host of other wrongs that we've committed at one time or another? From our perspective, murder seems to be so much greater, so, so much of a greater crime than greed, lying, or slander. And yet think about it. What about the thousands of people who have died of malnutrition and hunger because of the greed that goes on in our world? And you see, folks, if we're in a financial position to be more generous, and we aren't, if we're hoarding way more money than we will need, then we're part of that spirit of greed. Or how about this? How many people have died either physically or emotionally? Or how many people's lives were forever changed in a negative way because of a lie, because of slander, malicious gossip, because of hate, a spirit of revenge, or a stubborn, stubborn refusal to forgive or to extend grace. You see, from God's perspective, sin is sin, and sin is costly. And every sin, regardless of how insignificant we may think it is, not only hurts us, but can hurt and even destroy others. 
The Bible says we all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We've all said no to God. We've rebelled against him and we're guilty. And unless our sinful condition is paid for, Romans 1 says the wrath or the justice of God remains on us. Now again, God loves us. He doesn't want us to be separated from him in hell. And yet his justice demands that our sins be paid for. And so God does an utterly amazing thing. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Out of love for us, God sends his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place to pay for our crimes, our sins against him and against others. And you see, that's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. You can't earn it. It's the only way that God could satisfy his justice and yet provide a way for us to have a second chance to be set free. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. That is the amazing offer that God makes to us. If we, by faith, we reach out in trust and accept God's offer of forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ, and we surrender our life to him, and we follow him as our Lord, the trajectory of our eternity will be forever changed from hell to heaven. On the other hand, if we continue to ignore and reject God and go our own way, then God's perfect justice has no choice but to leave us in our sin and in our lost condition, and we will receive exactly what we have wanted, life without God, which is hell. That's the first reason that hell is necessary because God's justice requires it. The second reason that hell is necessary is because God's love requires it. Brian Wilkerson says, suppose that you're a parent and your son decides he wants nothing to do with you and he leaves home for the West Coast. So what are your options? Well, you could send him letters and emails expressing your love. You can send money to help him get on his feet. And you can attempt to visit him and plead with him to come home. But if you love him, there is one thing that you cannot do. You can't bind him hand and foot, drag him home, and chain him to his bed for the rest of his life. Well, I suppose you could. But let's face it, that's not love. 
That's kidnapping. That's imprisonment. And God just simply doesn't uh, function that way. Now, you see, this understanding of love is also something that God gave us when he made us in his image. As I said, God is love. And, and, and he wants us to return his love freely from the heart. And so he gives us the freedom to love him back or to ignore or reject him. But here's the thing. If we ignore or reject him, what is God to do? Well, turn your Bibles to Romans 1 for a moment. In this chapter, we're given a description of the moral decline of man, of how man decided to worship the things that God made rather than worship or love God himself, which in time devolved into all kinds of foolish and depraved thinking and disgusting perversions. And the Bible there goes on to say, that after some time, in verse 24, that God gave them over to sexual impurity. In verse 26, it says, God gave them over to shameful lusts. In verse 28, it says, and God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they did what ought not be done. Did you notice that three times it says here that God gave them over? It's some of the saddest words in the New Testament. To give over means to hand over control and responsibility. You know, you can say to God, either directly or indirectly by just simply ignoring him, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't want to follow you. Just, just leave me alone. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. And even though God will continue to pursue you and attempt to get your attention, there will come a time when God will say, okay, have it your way, and he will leave you alone. He will turn you over to your wishes. He will also turn you over. Uh, the, uh, he will turn over to you the responsibility and the consequences for the decisions that you make. One theologian put it this way, those who do not wish to love God must be allowed not to love him. Those who do not want to be with God must be allowed to be separated from him. The answer then to the question, why would a loving God send people to hell? In the strictest sense, is this, because that is the destination that they have chosen. Now, please understand, I don't believe that people, at least most people, consciously choose hell. But they do choose to ignore God or to reject God and his offer of grace and forgiveness again and again. I like what Dr. J.P. Moreland has written. He says, God is the most generous, loving, wonderful, attractive being in the universe. 
He has made us with free will and he has made us for a purpose to relate lovingly to him and to others. And if we fail over and over again to live for the purpose for which we were made, a purpose, by the way, which would al allow us to flourish more than living uh, uh, in any other way, then God will have absolutely no choice but to give us what we've asked for all along in our lives, which is separation from him, life without him. And that is hell. And so I come back to the question I asked at the beginning. Which path are you on? The path that leads to eternity with God or the path that leads to eternity without God? What will you do with Jesus and his claims? I'm going to close with two implications of our time in the scriptures today that relate to our lives. First of all, a word to those of us who are followers of Christ. Let me ask you, what will matter most to you a hundred years from now? A hundred years from now, every one of us will realize that the only thing that we can take with us to heaven is our faith in and our friendship with Jesus and also the people that we introduce to Jesus. That's it. Everything else, the temporary things of life, the money, the new car, the better house, power, the position we're, hunt, we're, we're wanting so badly, pleasure, all of that is going to be left behind and it is going to burn. In light of this, when you look at your values and your priorities, how burdened is your heart for the spiritually lost, for those who are headed for a Christless eternity? How earnestly are you praying for them and reaching out to them with the love of Jesus? I want to encourage you to take a moment right now and ask a question we become accustomed to asking. Lord, what are you saying to me? And what do you want me to do about it? Just take a moment right now and begin to reflect on that. And then a word for those of you who aren't really sure where you will be moments after you die. You know, my intent is not to scare anyone with hell or bribe anyone with heaven or to pressure anyone into making a decision that's not sincere. But the fact is, right in this moment, you're staring at Christ and the cross of Christ and you have a decision to make. How will you respond to this message? What are you going to do with Jesus? Will you continue to trust in your own theories or in your own goodness and your own good works to get you to heaven? Or will you accept the free gift of grace and forgiveness that Christ died to make available to you? 
You know, he loves you so much that he gave all that he had, his very life, to make a way for you and me to come home to him. Will you kneel at the cross and trust him with your life? Or will you once again make a big left turn at the cross and say, no, I'll do this another time? Or no, I'm not trusting or following anyone. I'm doing this my way. What I want to say to you is you don't need to fear or wonder where you're going to be moments after you die. Jesus has made a way. If you feel something inside of you tugging at your heart, that is God reaching out to you and whispering, come home, son. Come home, daughter. I died to set you free. Come home. If you want to be set free of your sins and your regrets, if you want to experience true joy, peace, and fulfillment in life and, and begin building a friendship with Jesus, I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer right now. You, by the way, you, you can pray it out loud or you can pray it silently if you wish. Because see, God, he knows your thoughts. So let's pray together. Join me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for pursuing me all my life and for opening up my spiritual eyes today. I want to be your friend not only in this life, but forever in heaven. I know that heaven is a perfect place and I'm far from perfect. So please forgive me of my sins. Make me clean and righteous through the shed blood of Jesus so that I might be your spiritual child. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place, for making it possible not only for me to be forgiven, but also to live in freedom and victory in this life through you. As you gave your life for me, I now give my life to you in faith. And I accept you as my Lord, my King and Savior. Help me now to know. Help me to know you more. To follow you faithfully with other Christians. For I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer from the heart, the Bible says that you have become, in the spiritual realm, his spiritual son and daughter. The old is gone. The new has come. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. And if you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to indicate that decision just by pressing that little icon in the screen in front of you uh, right now. Perhaps even more importantly, I want to encourage you to reach out to our pastors, uh, to our prayer partners, um, because they want to pray with you. They want to encourage you and support you in your faith journey going forward. Let's close our time together now by praising the Lord our God in song. The one who made it possible for us to 
not only know him, but to be his friend forever in this life and the next. Let's join together.